Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 95, Spaceship Crash Testing, a crash course in space safety. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on right here at NASA. So if you're familiar with us, you may know we've had a couple of episodes about the Orion spacecraft, the one that will be traveling into deep space carrying humans. We've covered a variety of topics, a lot of them focusing on the more human side of things, keeping them alive and comfortable, protecting them from radiation, and learning how to deal with emergencies if necessary. That's a lot of human spaceflight, thinking of what could go wrong and then solving the issues ahead of time. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This topic is called Occupant Protection. It's basically thinking of ways that Orion could put stresses on the human body during different phases of flight, like launches and landings, and thinking of ways the crew inside could be injured. This could come from vibration or acceleration, even hard impacts. And then super smart people get together and design parts of Orion to make sure the crew is safe. So today we're talking about the biomechanics of it all, and even what biomechanics is, with Mark Baldwin. Mark is one of those super smart people helping to solve these issues. He has a background that goes deep into figuring out how to keep people safe. Anatomic modeling, kinetics and kinematics, ergonomics, and crash testing for planes, trains, and automobiles, and now spacecraft. This guy has strapped himself into a vibration table for Orion testing for seven hours over the course of two days, all in the name of good engineering. He's an Orion occupant protection specialist for Lockheed Martin. So here's a crash course on occupant protection and biomechanics with Dr. Mark Baldwin. Enjoy. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Mark, uh, thank you for uh, calling in all the way from Littleton, Colorado today. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, so if you're thinking about, and this this kind of struck me, if you're thinking about just fun engineering jobs, crash testing has to be up there for something you see and think, yep, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Is that is that kind of how you started with your career, or did, or did you kind of take another path? You know, there's nothing early in my childhood that directed me towards crash testing, but um, when I was an engineer, um, I did have an interest in things, how they moved, how they worked, kind of the underlying reasons things functioned. Um, and then in my undergraduate at Purdue University, um, I started in mechanical engineering, but I definitely had interest in uh, another aspect of engineering, which was biomechanical engineering. And, and that is uh, a unique form that really takes mechanics and applies it to the body. Um, it was only later when I got into industry that I got exposure to crash testing and um, crash test dummies. And it, it was really interesting, of course, the first time you see a big test and how fast everything occurs and things flying off or things breaking, you think, wow, that was pretty intense. Um, so that was really the the origin of where I am now. Yeah, it's 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 a very visual thing, and it's it's just super cool to watch. Um, and and that's kind of where I wanted to start with was your your you said it was you started with mechanical engineering and then went into this biomechanical, and I kind of wanted to start there. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is, biomechanical engineering and biomechanics? 
Sure. Yeah, actually, we need to start with mechanics and mechanical engineering, really. Um, and, and you can break that down into generally three categories. The first would be how things are designed, and, and that really comes down to the shape of things, the size of things, how things fit together. Um, in spacecraft development, a lot of that comes down to the computer-aided design and laying things out. Can we fit all this stuff physically into the vehicle? Um, and then there's uh, motion, things that move, kinematics. Um, on a spacecraft, there are lots of things that are actuated, so either a valve opens or buttons are pressed, or even pyrotechnics, small explosions that occur to release something. Um, and, of course, anytime you have motion, you're going to have certain loads associated with that motion. Um, and then that gets to the third piece, the strength and the stress. So a lot of people don't know those terms. Um, but in general, that's how a material can withstand external environments. So what type of load is applied to those parts in the spacecraft? And I'll give you an example. Um, in terms of the human, um, strength you can think of as how much strength is in your arm. So let's just take your bicep. If you hold out a, a platter that has uh, 100 pounds of cookies on it and you're holding that straight in front of you, you can think of I have a certain amount of strength in my arm to support that 100 pounds. Now, stress is a common output we look at in engineering to see if we, that part, in this case our bicep, can withstand the amount of load put over a certain area. So your bicep would be the cross-sectional area if you cut your bicep in half. Now, if I'm strong enough to support that 100 pounds, the strength is greater than the stress, and I will not see a failure. Now, if I take my son Dylan, who's eight, and I ask him to hold the same plate of 100 pounds of cookies, now he has a much smaller cross-sectional area for his bicep. Same force, and if his arm is the same length, now all of a sudden he has a lot more stress, and his arm will fall, and he doesn't have enough strength. So in that case, the stress exceeds the strength, and that's when things break. So on spacecraft, same kind of thing. When the stress is higher than the strength of the material or the part, then you can get catastrophic failures. So it's really those three things, the, the design, the motion of things, and strength and stress. That's all mechanical engineering. Yeah, so it's, like, it's like if a, job, if a job needs to be done, what you're doing is basically you're solving that problem. You're, you're trying to figure out what's the best way that I can solve this problem and make sure on the strength and stress side that it's going to be reliable in solving that problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there are multiple teams of people that do these things. So it's a big collaborative effort, both on the Lockheed Martin side and the NASA side, to ensure that we're really addressing these three aspects of mechanical engineering. So then back to your question about biomechanical engineering, that's where it gets interesting. Um, so in general, biomechanics or biomechanical engineering is take those same fundamentals of mechanical engineering and now apply them to the body. The challenge there is that, of course, there are no parallel or perpendicular surfaces. There are no right angles in the body. Um, all the materials are pretty much nonlinear. Um, and then people come in different shapes and sizes and different body strengths. So you're going to have inherent variability, as in everybody's different. So you can't just apply one set of loads or environments to one person and expect a different person of a different size to be able to withstand that same environment. 
Yeah, that makes things a little bit harder because now do you not only have to solve that problem with the mechanical engineering part, now add the human, you got to not only solve the problem, uh, but you have to make sure that the human is going to be okay when the problem is solved. And then that it's flexible enough that, you know, multiple types of people can survive it or, or it, it, it works for them. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And and so then if if we look at now applying this whole biomechanical engineering to Orion specifically and to keeping the astronauts safe, to be able to do all those things, we need to we need to look at how to protect the the humans in a variety of different ways, right? We need to provide surfaces that support them, that limit that motion, and that keep those external environments that are applied to the vehicle to a level sustainable by humans without injury. And that's that's really the crux of my job. Um, and also what makes it interesting, because then I get to work with uh, a large variety of people, both on the NASA and the Lockheed side. So that's, uh, for example, the crew systems team, Lockheed Martin crew systems team in Houston designing the seats. That may be the Orion crew survivability systems team, the suit guys at NASA JSC, human factors folks um, against stress and other mechanical analysis teams. All that stuff needs to go into what we consider for astronaut safety and assessment of whether an injury is going to occur or not. Mm -hmm. So like for, let, let's take, um, let's take an abort for an example. You're, you're on your way into space and something happens and, and the abort system is supposed to carry the crew module away with the people inside uh, safely. So from a mechanical side, you got to make sure that it actually pulls it away from a speeding rocket. Okay, that's fine. But from the from the human side, you got to make sure that it does it in a way where the humans are safe and going to be okay, as well as the crew module. Yeah, absolutely, and and so that's the trick of it. Now we'll get to it later, but that's the whole purpose of our ascent abort number two test that's coming up um, later this summer. And and really from that test, it's it's my job along with others to to understand and characterize that environment. Now keep in mind that's one test. We can collect data on that test, but a real abort could occur in any number of ways. And so that's where, as an engineer, I have to take the one data point I have, and then understand how that could possibly change, and then I could analytically put in different sized people and then carry it forward to that assessment of potential injury. Yeah. It seems it is the way I think the way I'm kind of describing it and the way you're describing it, it does seem pretty straightforward, but I think I think there's more to it. But so before we kind of go into the Orion part, let's just kind of ex expand on this biomechanics part. You know, where did this all start? Tell us the history about about biomechanics and why this is important. Yeah, so it it really is relatively a, a recent um field of engineering in that, let's say by the 1950s, we we started seeing automotive accidents in which people were not surviving, right? We had vehicles that went fast enough now to impart a load potentially beyond what the body could handle. At that time, uh, very little research had been done. Um, there were limited animal studies uh, trying to characterize impact, but the the one person that would probably be credited as the, the grandfather of impact biomechanics would be a guy named Colonel uh, John Paul Stapp. He was actually a, a physician within the Air Force 
This was in the 1950s, and if you Google him, you can look up on YouTube, John Paul Stapp 46.2 Gs. And what that means is, envision this, in the 50s, your boss comes into a Monday morning meeting and he says, all right, team, here's what we're going to do. We're going to strap me to a rocket sled, and I'm going to go down a track at 630 miles an hour, and then you're going to stop me within one second. Everybody in? (laughs) Would blow your mind, right? You think this is insane. Yeah. But the reality is, at that time, remember, this is the 50s, they didn't understand what a human body could take. Now, he didn't just jump into that. He actually did a number of impact tests where he strapped himself into a seat, and they just slammed the seat and arrested it quickly. Um, And he flails forward, but he's okay. Well, they worked themselves up to this rocket sled test, and you can see the video on YouTube. But what he did was he said, all right, I'm going to put myself in this situation because I want that data point. This could end badly, but we need to understand. And as part of the Air Force, he was really thinking of the entire air crew, before we expose and ask our pilots to be exposed to ejections and crashes, I'm going to understand this. So he strapped himself in, put a helmet on, and he went shooting down this track at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Uh, at the time, he was the, considered the fastest man alive at 632 miles an hour. He stopped, like I said, within one second. That imparted 46.2 Gs, so that's 46 times his own body weight, nearly 8,000 pounds when he stopped. And when he stopped, he had broken ribs, he had a hernia, he shattered his wrist, his eyes hemorrhaged, he was temporarily blinded, his eyes were full of blood, and he fractured his tailbone. However, he survived, and that data point to this day is one of the most extreme exposures, intentional extreme exposures, that survived. And that later populated what's uh, a limit for what we consider people can take from just an acceleration exposure standpoint. Now, keep in mind, he was well protected. He had a huge harness on and a helmet, et cetera. But he, <laughs> he put himself at risk to make that point. Yeah, the idea is, you know, how much how much can the human body withstand? And this guy put himself through the most extreme circumstances possible to, like you said, get that data point. But now what can we learn from that? I think, you know, one of the first things I think of is, all right, well, if we're going to design a system, let's make it so that it doesn't exert 42 Gs on a human body, right? I think that's that's, right. that's probably fair. Yeah. So then I guess a lot of that got taken into human spaceflight then, because because if you're talking about, you know, we kind of reference an abort scenario, but even launches and stuff like that, you just you don't want to you don't want to have that much force on a on a person. That's right. But keep in mind, and this is one thing that's probably not clear, is there is a a certain amount of um, impact that you can take without damage. Hmm. And then there's certain levels of damage within the body and certain types of damage within the body that can occur. And the interesting part is now it depends on which direction you load and how by how much. And a lot of people ask me this question. When you when we have an abort, let's take this ascent abort case, everybody asks me, well, are they going to pass out? Well, the answer is not necessarily. It's very much a function of how intense 
that acceleration is, so the magnitude of the acceleration, and then how quick it occurs. And that's one thing that after Staff was done with his research, uh, a guy named Jim Brinkley, who was um, a civilian working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, he, during the Vietnam era, wanted to address a little bit more um, dedicated to directionality and that magnitude what the limits were. So he took Air Force cadets, put them into his own sled test. They didn't go anywhere close to 46 Gs, but what he did is he placed them at different orientations, so head up, head down, frontward, backward, and started to vary the magnitude and the duration of those pulses. And by doing that, he was able to start to fill in the blanks of what could the human body take if you were well supported, if you had a full harness, if you had a helmet. And so from that, we developed what's called the Brinkley model, named after Mr. Brinkley. And that gave us, we'll call it a first cut or the first level of understanding of when I go look at any and all of Orion mission, throughout the mission, any high G level events, I can use this Brinkley model to characterize that acceleration in any direction and any seat and get a sense of whether I'm going to induce injury. I don't know what the injury is going to be. I just know that maybe an injury could occur and how severe that injury might be. Yeah. So even even just before spaceflight, Brinkley was looking at this, this uh, I guess, short-duration acceleration sort of phenomenon. And I think, yep. you know, we were in the middle of the, like you said, the, the Vietnam War coming in, up in the 60s here. Um, you know, I, I'm guessing like a lot of... Uh, uh, there were already systems of 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 jets and um, and other kind of spacecraft where they were exposed to these high Gs. You know what were what were those systems doing to these soldiers? Uh, were, were they did did they not really realize until after Stapp and 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 Brinkley was investigating this? Like, oh, this is probably you know the way that we're we're looking at humans and the and the mechanical side of things should probably be in sync in sync. Yeah, so that, that that's where the story gets a little more interesting, in fact, because uh, what they found were Air Force pilots would rather crash their planes into the ground than eject. And you could say, well, why is that? And it's because the spinal injury rate was uh, unacceptably high. So the pilot basically made a calculation that I would rather crash and take my chances than eject. Well, clearly that's a terrible design, but to be fair... What they didn't realize is these accelerations are one portion of the picture. There is another aspect, which is what's the direction of loading relative to sensitive parts of the body. So now instead of looking at just acceleration, now let's start to hone in on parts that could be injured, such as the cervical spine at the base of the skull. Does the helmet contribute that? Adding mass to the head contribute to that? And so they started to dig in a little bit deeper, and that's what um, is really more the the secondary level that we use today. So we still use Brinkley as that first pass at acceleration assessment, but once we do that, we need to now look at Orion-specific hardware, and that means the seat, the suit, the harness. How do all those pieces fit together, and will any of those contribute to now a localized injury, let's say, at the head or neck? Yeah. 
Yeah, so so I guess before we really dive into all of these different components, the seat, the suit, the helmet, and all that for specifically Orion, you know, let's talk about, you know, what it actually, where these injuries can come from. You know, what are we, what are we looking at if you had to break it down of, of the main sources? Yeah, so um, in 2013, NASA solicited um, a variety of experts in the field. So academics, we brought in the Air Force, we brought in the Navy, and we posed the same question. Um, what do we need to really be looking at for human spaceflight? And, and really this is, was rewriting the book um, for any and all man-rated capsules or vehicles. And so at that time, there's already a quite established body of work done in the automotive industry and Air Force to assess um, localized injury. So we got to the, the deeper layer of what could be injured and how. So in your car that you drove to work today, every part of that car has to conform to a certain set of automotive standards. And those, when you run a crash test, will assess the likelihood of skull fracture by hitting your head on any port of, any part of the vehicle, uh, a neck or cervical fracture that could um, impart forces and moments right below the skull. Um, there's chest, there's pelvis, there's any parts of the body that would be sensitive to either localized or acceleration loading now became adopted as part of the standard because we needed to understand these things, especially because spacecraft are not cars. Now we're putting, and if you look at the, the interior of the Soyuz, you can see how astronauts are put, placed in more of a fetal posture, plus they're reclined back relative to the ground, very different than what you would see in your typical vehicle or automotive vehicle. So now we have to take into account the specific configuration for any and all spacecraft and how the helmet ha interacts with the, the seat, the harness, and as you land, whatever your environments are, whether it's hitting the water after a splashdown or during an abort, now you have to start looking at each of these pieces of information in those environments against what are established limits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so... so what uh let's see if you're looking at all of these different elements of how you know the, all the different sources or or um i guess you can say locations of the injury you know what what is really what is what can really cause this injury uh, especially when it comes to space flight you know i'm thinking uh, basically the abort is a good scenario but even like major traumatic things like is is a launch can a launch be a, um one of the sources or you know acceleration vibration what are we looking at um, yeah, so it really does fall into three different categories. The first would be vibration. And uh, vibration is not very intuitive to, to most people because uh, you don't experience it in everyday life. Um, and yet the, the, sheer, the sheer nature of vibration means it goes up and down. Your loading will switch directions. Um, the, the magnitude and the duration of that, just like impact, matters quite a bit. And then whether it's applied head to tail or chest to back, those kinds of things also make a difference. So we, we have to look at vibration from as soon as they light the rocket all the way through ascent. And then, of course, during abort, the, the abort motor will have a much different uh, vibration 
uh, profile than your typical ascent. So that's item number one is vibration. Number two is sustained acceleration, and we consider that anything that occurs and lasts for longer than half a second. So that would be like your centrifuge testing and and G-lock when you're pulling G's in an airplane. Um, we have certain limits that were characterized back in the Apollo days to understand, okay, when does somebody pass out? Mm-hmm. And then third is the short-duration acceleration, really impact, and, and that's the Brinkley model. And, and for the localized industry I- injuries, we can get into crash test dummies and, and what those do, and, and that's really our key to be able to understand and characterize when a localized injury might occur. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's go let's go through those three types of injuries. That uh, I guess you said starting with vibration. I'm I, I mean I've I'm trying to imagine myself maybe on like a ride, some kind of roller coaster ride where I'm vibrating intensely. I can't I can't imagine being vibrated so intensely that it, that it, um, it it has bodily harm. But I'm sure there are scenarios. You know what what is so bad about vibration? Why why is this a concern for ours? Well, so first of all, the going back to what I started with, the mechanical system, the body as a mechanical system, you can imagine that all these tissues from rigid bones to soft tissues like the heart, they all have unique mechanical properties. And in terms of vibration, we refer to a resonant frequency, and that means something that at a certain frequency will start to resonate, will start to move and amplify an input. So the body is sensitive to different frequencies. Um, and, and so to understand that fully and understand that within the spacecraft environment, you there's really no substitute for human subject testing. And so back in the 60s, uh, the same test lab, uh, that did the impact testing of the air cadets also strapped them to vibration tables. Um, so if you go and YouTube bioastronautics research, government archives, you can see some of these tests. And, and these guys were heroic because they, they were trying to establish the limit of what somebody could take under vibration. And it wasn't just random vibration where that frequency changes, so you'd be moving in and out of sensitive frequencies. These were sign sweeps, which means you are going up and down at a specific frequency. And if you go to the video, you see these guys, it looks like they're just trying to hop up and down off the table. They had them laying on their back. And the way they conducted these studies was really interesting. I sure wouldn't want to do it now, but <laughs> they they basically put them at a certain frequency, and then they started turning up the volume, if you will, the gain on these frequencies. So these people went from just jiggling a little bit to really bouncing and getting airborne uh, with only that belt holding them onto the seat. And they basically kept these guys going until they hit the switch and said, stop. <laughs> so it was really intense, but they captured that data. And that data today is what we use as a limit of do not exceed on Orion. So, yeah, what I mean I mean, first of all, yes, I think brave is a is a good word for, that you'd use to describe these guys cuz I certainly wouldn't sign up for that test. Hey, shake me as violently as you can. Let's test the <laughs> limits of the human body. Um but, you know, what did we learn? What what can the human body withstand? What happens when we get to those higher levels and el- those higher gains of vibration? What's going on? So, yeah, what happens at the the more extreme levels is you start to um, lose the ability to to take a breath like your your lungs are being compressed and expanded too fast and you can't breathe uh, other things they found were 
pain in the head, headaches. So uh, it's almost like you're shaking your brain inside your skull to the point where it really starts to hurt. Um, of course, we don't want to go anywhere close to that level at this point, and certainly for not the durations. So building upon the approach that they took back in the 60s, we wanted to answer that same question specific to Orion. So in 2016, um, I was working with colleagues at Johnson Space Center and the Human Engineering Group, and we developed a plan, and we said, you know, we're not going to go to those extreme levels, but we do want to characterize what it's like for our astronauts to ride Orion. So I suggested, well, let's put together a plan. Let's get a real seat. Let's get a, a flight-like suit. And, oh, by the way, I'll go first. You can strap me into the seat. And they said, sure, Mark, you're a perfect dummy. So uh, they <laughs> they brought me down to JSC. We had it all set up. Uh, we did those same sign sweeps, but we didn't go nearly the same amplitude that the guys in the 60s did because, quite honestly, we didn't need to establish that limit anymore. I didn't want to be shaken to the point where I couldn't breathe. Yeah, you already had the data. Right, but we, we actually were interested in collecting data to build a model. Mm. So interestingly, I'm going to live on as a stick figure model in our vibro, vibro acoustics analyses because we use the data collected on me to to make a little stick figure version of me and put it in our analytical really big complicated models <laughs> but what was great about that test was kind of like you Gary I didn't really have a great understanding of what does vibration feel like you know what is what hurts or, or what's it really so intense that I can't handle it and so um, by going first, I said, let's get me in there. Let's run different tests. Let's see what this feels like. And as an engineer, it went back to that, I really want to understand. How, how is this going to affect the crew? So they strapped me in the seat for two days in a row. I spent seven hours in the seat. We went through a variety of different tests. We did sign sweeps, but we also simulated both liftoff and the most extreme parts of the ascent which was, uh, it's called Buffett, but that's when the, the vehicle is starting to shake across a variety of different frequencies. And then going back to the sensitive part of the human body, we wanted to make sure that nothing was going to be damaged or I didn't feel head pain or anything like that. Um, and and as, as a fun aside, the thing I was most worried about was uh, we, we had high-speed video focused on my face, and I, we were doing these tests, visors down, and I was really nervous about throwing up inside the helmet because that would have been caught on video and I never would have lived that one down. But it turns out I, I didn't throw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay, so so it looks like the, the sources of vibration for Orion are liftoff and this buffet, like this, this, uh, this time during ascent. These are the primary sources of the most violent vibration. So tell me, you experienced it. What was it like? What did it really feel like? So uh, for the most part... When the crew are going to be on, in our case, it'll be the space launch system, um, you know, they're going to be 300 feet up above where the flames are coming out of the bottom of the rocket. You would think that's far up, but you have to almost look at a rocket and a capsule as just a stack of springs, right? You're sitting on metal that is all capturing a lot of this structure-borne vibration way down below you, but is transmitting all the way up into the seat. By the time it gets to the crew, um, you know, ascent as you go, 
is what we call random vibration, as in you're moving in and out of certain frequencies and amplitudes, so, so the severity is changing constantly. And really, actually, the test series was to focus on legibility. Could we read the display units? And interestingly, um, so I had this display unit suspended over my head as I was being shaken to what we considered an ascent and even that buffet, that most severe part, and I could read the displays just fine. And at times, the displays would blur ever so slightly and then snap right back into focus. And that's an illustration of the effect that it's having when, because it's random. Sometimes you'll tune into the, the eyeball or the head, but it'll move in and out quickly. So it really was not... It, it, it was not uncomfortable at all. It was kind of neat, honestly, to to hear as well as feel that input to the crew. And, and we came out of that series with a lot of confidence that you know not only will our our crew be able to read the display units, but they're they're going to be quite fine. That's good, and that's actually an important that's an important reason to conduct the test in the first place. Rather than just sort of assume or predict what's going to happen, put yourself in the scenario, test it out, and see. Oh, by the way, when whenever you're launching, you're going to feel the vibration, but you know you'll be able to read the screen. It might come in and out every yeah. once in a while, but it's going to work out for you. Yep. That's yeah. Right. All right. So so that's that's vibration, which which you know it's it's super interesting, and that's just only one phase of the flight, though. I mean the 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 biggest sources there are liftoff and, and ascent. Um, but what about the sustained acceleration? Where's where's that coming from? Yeah, so sustained, um, we'll, we'll talk about the ascent abort trajectories for AA2, but the, the way that works is the, the vehicle is going to be pulled away from the rocket. So the Orion crew module will be separated, and it, while the the accelerations are severe right in the beginning. You're still not quite done. You still have to do a reorientation to put the bottom of the vehicle, the heat shield side, first because that's what hits the water. Then you have to go through a series of parachute deployments, and each one of those releases a packed parachute on the vehicle. It inflates, and then the crew module is just dangling and spinning underneath. We'd like to control that to a level where you know, you're not going to pass anybody out, but sometimes parachutes fail. Um, in the case of a pad abort, you have very little time to get all of the parachutes out, so sometimes you have to skip a few and go right to the main parachutes to open all those up before you hit the ground. So we work with the guided navigation control folks at both Lockheed Martin and NASA to assess how much acceleration you would feel in the seats and then along which direction. And we have these charts, and we can look at each one of these types of environments uh, throughout the entire reentry and all the shoot sequences and confirm that, yeah, you might be spun for a little bit, but you're not going to pass out. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get, and we will get into the ascent abort and, and exactly what's happening there, but it sounds like that's, that's going to be the source for this sustained acceleration. That's longer than half of a second. Yeah. Yeah. But then the short duration one, I think this can come from uh, several different sources, right? The, the, uh, the yeah. impact sort of Brinkley model sort of thing. Where's, where are these coming from? Yeah, so um, if you go through the mission sequence, the first possibility you would see this would be an abort. Like I mentioned, you could have an abort on the pad. Now, the the abort motors were designed to get you away quickly and safely, but like we mentioned earlier, you can't do it so fast that you liquefy the crew in the process, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a limit to the G levels that you want to keep during that abort. And now on the pad, you can imagine you're not moving versus you're going really fast during ascent and you have to do the ascent abort. 
it has to operate in both ways and also can't overload the crew both during ascent and pad. So that's that's one major thing we look at. Uh, pretend we get all the way around, we do our mission, we're coming back through. Now we have the shoot deploy sequences. Those can impart a jerk onto the vehicle. And the the weird thing there is that the vehicle may be oriented in different ways, right? You you actually come in on Orion upside down and backwards, and through a series of maneuvers, then you get feet first and down. When those chutes deploy, though, you may be still spinning as the next step deploys. So we have to look at directional accelerations there, but the magnitude is generally a lot lower. The last thing is landing. And so in, in my job, I really focus on about two seconds of an entire mission entire two-week mission, I spent all my time looking at abort and landing because that's when the accelerations are the most severe. And landing is really interesting because it is unique to spaceflight because these, our capsule and others are going to land in the ocean. If we have an abort, we're not done yet. You still got to land in the Atlantic. If you have a nominal reentry in the Pacific, we have to land, and we could land under a variety of conditions with winds and waves. And then, uh, you know, anybody that's done a belly flop off the diving board, you know that if you land flat, that hurts a lot, yeah. right? So we don't want to land too flat, and we also don't want to land too steep such that we roll over. So we spend quite a bit of time and and have done a series of really interesting tests to characterize not only how does the vehicle respond to landing, but how do the crew respond to that acceleration in each of the seats? Yeah, you know, that's that's funny that you describe it and the entire duration of the space flight. You really focused on a few seconds, but these are a very important few seconds. They are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so tell me, what what are you doing to uh, to test this, this? I guess we'll focus on landing for now, landing in the water. What is? How do you actually get a feel for what that's going to be like? Yeah, so this is where the collaboration between Lockheed Martin and NASA really worked well. So um, let, let's back up a little bit. Uh, several years ago, we we didn't really have a great sense of how Orion, when it hit the water, would translate to local seat acceleration so we could do those Brinkley and the crash system, the assessments. So instead, we started out with uh, faking it in way where we – we put a seat on a sled, and we went to that same location, Wright Pad Air Force Base, that put humans in the seats, and we simulated what we thought was an acceleration profile um, based on some preliminary drop test with a very crude version of the vehicle, um, a boilerplate. And we had run tests with a full-scale boilerplate at NASA Langley. They built a dedicated pool, a 20-foot pool, under what they call the gantry, which was used back in the Apollo days. And the gantry is really neat. It's this 200-foot-tall structure that they can pick up our 20,000-pound vehicle, raise it up to 100 feet, swing it, and then drop it into the water and let it smack. And we can do that under controlled conditions. We can either turn it around or we can tip it forward or we can make it flat for that belly flop. So we we spent quite a bit of time, and we thought through this. We we said, all right, let's first start with these simple boilerplate. Doesn't have to be a fancy vehicle. Let's just drop something in the water and characterize those accelerations. So we did that. Then we took those accelerations and we translated that over to the sled tests at Wright Pad Air Force Base. Then we started testing dummies inside of crash test dummies inside of suits in our seat and started running those tests. 
So we're starting to build this understanding of how does the whole vehicle acceleration during landing relate to the localized injury potential at the crew. So as we did a couple of those preliminary series, we said, well, why don't we just put the whole thing together um, and do this for real? So in 2016, again, with the NASA Langley team and the Lockheed Martin landing team, we developed a plan of 10 different tests. Now, this time, the tests were a lot more, um, had a lot more fidelity to them in that we used and recycled a, what we called the ground test article, which was a medium fidelity. It had an interior, much like the structure of the real vehicles, but it allowed us to put in real seats and what we call the crew impact attenuation system, and I'll get to that in a second. It allowed us to put in a small and a large crash test on the inside a spacesuit and then drop that whole thing in the water multiple times. And, and so there's actually a picture of myself and Ricky Barr from the Orion Crew Survivability Systems at NASA JSC. We were in the vehicle stuffing the dummies into the suits, and that picture made it into National Geographic in uh, November of 2016. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Essentially, you're to to summarize, you're basically throwing this this uh, this module, the, basically what what is to be the Orion, uh, in the water, seeing what the crew is going to be really up for when it comes to a landing and all these different scenarios, and then putting you know uh, uh, this this test dummy, this article that's that's seeing where the loads are going to be are going to be put, right? So you, you kind of throw them in different directions, put them in a suit, um, um, basically replicate the scenario of what the crew is going to be, and then see, is this where the design element comes in, where you like, okay, we need to put the seat this way, we need to make sure the suit is has, has this sort of material or is, or is uh, situated this way for the comfort of the crew? You know, where do some of the, some of the ways you're designing for a successful Orion mission come in? Yeah, so that's that's where all of this goes way beyond me, right? Uh, some of the teams that I mentioned before, the guys developing the seat, the Lockheed Martin Crew Systems team, um, the Orion Crew Survivability Systems, that's the suit guys. So Rick and I flew to Langley to make sure we set all that stuff up inside the vehicle as close to f- flight as we could get it. Then um, another interesting thing that, that folks may not know about, um, the impact attenuation system. So on Apollo... All three people were strapped to a single couch. That couch was suspended inside the vehicle via these struts, and those struts were meant to stroke the couch if you hit hard enough. Well, on Orion, we actually started out with a similar design. We got four crew on Orion, um, but the struts were kind of bulky and in the way, and we didn't want those. So we said, well, wait, can we do this better? So we we took a page from another industry, um, the helicopter industry. So Blackhawk helicopters, the pilots that sit in those front seats, they actually, when they hit the ground, because the impact is so severe, the seats are designed to physically translate down a series of rails, and you can end up through the floor, by design, through the floor in a Blackhawk, and, and the floor is cut out. What that does is it reduces the severity of the acceleration, especially on the spine, right? That's the most sensitive part of the body that you want to protect. So helicopters have been crashing for years and years. They've evolved this technology, and we say, well, why don't we borrow some of that technology and put it into Orion? So we did, and not only that, but instead of everybody being tied together, which 
wouldn't give the same acceleration to a small lightweight crew member as a big crew member. We said, why don't we decouple each of the seats? Why don't we develop an impact attenuation system along the spine that can be tuned per the person's mass? And then everybody sees a comparable acceleration. It doesn't matter if you're our minimum 94-pound or your maximum 243-pound crew member. Everybody will see the same acceleration if you have a hard enough landing to stroke that. So what we did is we put those units inside this test series to see if it would work. And lo and behold, when we hit just right and we loaded up the spine, we saw our system do exactly what we wanted it to do, which was stroke along the spine and limit that acceleration and that load to the cervical and the lumbar spine. That is awesome. So this goes back to that when your basic description of what biomechanical engineering really is yeah. all about is this flexibility when it comes to the crew members. And this system, correct me if I'm wrong, basically what you're doing is you're making each seat, knowing who's going to sit in that seat, you're making it so that a crew member of this mass, you kind of tweak it up a little bit, and it is specifically designed to, uh, uh, I guess, decrease the acceleration in the event of an impact for that specific crew member. Yep, that's right. That's right. And, and while we were making this change, uh, I'll illustrate one of the most interesting days I had on the program. I got a phone call, and it's a guy named Milt Heflin who basically had my job 50 years ago. He was an Apollo engineer that was the landing engineer and the impact attenuation system engineer. And this guy, totally nice guy. He was great, but he was kind of grilling me a little bit, like, do you know what you're doing, buddy? And he, in, in, in a really nice way. But at the same time, I took him through everything I just described and said, you know what, we, we felt like there's new technology. We're going to leverage it. We should put it in. And I got the thumbs up for him. And, and so basically I was like, success, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's the idea, right? The idea is, yes, there's a lot of great lessons we can learn from the past because other people have done great research as well. But let's take this already great technology with, like you said, the helicopter technology, which has been crashed over and over, a lot of good data there. And uh, you can basically take that into human spaceflight and, and make an even better system that's going to make it safer for the crew. And that's the ultimate goal. It's the safety of the crew. Yeah, yeah. So, and let me let me take that one level deeper. So we have we have a dedicated group of about a half a dozen people within occupant protection, and we started this group with with a large group, but now we kind of refined it down to a subset of members. And and some of those members have been really instrumental in helping us. So um, the suit guys at JSC, Dustin Gomert and Ricky Barra and Jeff Suey, they're helping us understand all the features of the suit. Because when we go back to this acceleration environment, and now we put a heavy helmet and a bulky helmet on a body that is landing and hitting the water, we got to make sure that that helmet does not now impart a load on the neck to overload the sensitive portion, which is the cervical spine. I think folks remember the Dale Earnhardt NASCAR death. That was a basal or skull fracture because his helmet, the added weight of his helmet, torqued his neck right at that sensitive location and, and overloaded it. That's where that stress exceeded the strength. We're trying to prevent that. Um, in addition, we've recruited folks like Dr. Nancy Curry, who was an astronaut at JSC, and she is five foot two of total badass. She is this 
most awesome person you you would ever meet, but she <laughs> has been really helpful to make sure we keep in mind as we're doing these assessments, as we're testing, as we're doing analysis, that we don't forget that you have to make sure this system works for the shorter stature crew members and the tall and the small, the lighter weight and the heavier. So we spent a lot of time focusing on not just running a single test, and this is where the tools of today actually are beyond what the guys could do in Apollo. We can run analyses. So myself and other analysts, Jeff Summers, Chuck Lawrence, Jacob uh, Putnam and Martin Annette, we, we run what's called LS Dyna. It's nonlinear analysis, and we replicate as close as possible either those sled tests or the full-scale water drop tests with the small and the large and the medium-sized crash test dummies. And from those dummies, you can think of it as a bit of a transfer function. You put an acceleration in, and then outcomes from these models now forces and moments at the sensitive areas, whether it's the neck or accelerations at the head, and that gives us answers that will tell us, did we induce a neck injury? Do we have a skull fracture? Do we have traumatic brain injury? We can now look at all that stuff, and not just for the test that we ran, but now we can run all sorts of different environments that could occur that we can't go run 10,000 tests, but we can run 10,000 models and collect all those answers and then get a pretty holistic picture of what the risk is for any size crew and in any situation. Yeah. And this is this kind of goes back to that that biomechanical engineering, that flexibility, but also kind of highlights, um, you know, why why testing is important and why testing over and over again is important, because the truth is that people come in different shapes and sizes. So you need yeah. to accommodate that. And that's the kind of it's it, it makes engineering, I'm sure for you a little bit more difficult, but it is it's it's worth it because really the, the idea is to protect as many astronauts as possible. And I'm sure that this could be translated to other places, too. You know, you're getting really good data you can share that yeah and as we go forward so that's the let, let's go back to a centibort two test if if now's the time yeah um, go ahead yeah so we we as a as a program we need to understand these external environments as much as possible but you can imagine an centibort test is not cheap and we can't do a lot of them so we have to use this combination of test an analysis of that test and then analysis of things we couldn't test to try to fill in the blanks. So Ascentabort 2, um, similar to the very first water impact test, we have a crew module on there that's fairly simple. It doesn't have seats. It doesn't have crash test dummies or anything in it. But we do have a bunch of instrumentation in and around the crew module and the launch abort system. We're going to take that vehicle um, up to 31,000 feet. We're going to initiate the abort, and the whole thing is going to be over in one minute. But the sequence we go through is going to help us ground our structural models. So this is more classical mechanical engineering. Well, we'll understand the vibration. We'll understand the stress. We'll understand all those forcing functions, the things external to the vehicle, and we'll ground our models. Then, analytically, I can take what we just learned, and now I can drop in any size crash test dummy or any size stick figure model, remember, based on me under vibration, <laughs> and we can scale that to be large and small and then assess, okay, what would it have been like had we put somebody in that Ascent Abort 2 test? 
Yeah, there you go. The, the Ascenabort 2, you're not going to put the, the, the crash test dummies on there, but you're getting good info on what the environment is like. That's that's the idea, right? So you can put your own, do your own tests. Here, here's the data, now go do your own test. Absolutely, and that's where the, the analyses and the, the computational power we have today makes that pro- approach much more sensible. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Apollo, they the only choice they had was to throw the vehicle in the water as many times as they could and record all the data. We can do all of that. I can run a million different landing cases in less than a week. Nice. Yeah, that's really, really important. Um, you know, efficiency, obviously. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but so, so you got this ascent abort too. You're going to get some great data from what it's like to abort in the event that the vehicle is already on its way to space and then is aborted. Uh, you got this, um, you got water impact testing, you got these sled tests. You know, what What else do you need to test? Or, or, or really, is this going to give you a nice package to present to, um, you know, the Orion folks or whoever to say, we're ready to fly? Yeah, so... It, it's the last, I'd say, major extreme system-level test that we're going to do. We're not quite done, though, right? So the next big whole mission test is called Exploration Mission 1, EM-1. That is going to be a lunar flyby. We're collecting data on that. In fact, we have a seat and a mannequin and a suit that's going to ride in EM-1. Um, but we've opened the aperture beyond just uh, occupant protection for that test series, right? Of course, we're going to give structural data. Of course, we're going to go through the paces of the mission profile. But Inside the cabin, we're also going to add radiation torsos that are provided by the German Space Agency. So we're, we're actually collaborating on EM-1 to try to make sure we address not just injury but radiation exposure. So it's kind of cool. We've got two radiation torsos that are going to go in the bottom two seat locations. One of them is going to have a vest provided by the Israeli Space Agency um, to protect one of the German Space Agency torsos, and the other one won't have a vest. So we're going to kind of get a with and without comparison of of the exposure as they do the lunar flyby. And that's all baked into EM-1. Yeah. This is what I love about human spaceflight is all the international collaboration that that comes with it. It's it's pretty cool to see all these people come together and 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 do great things, especially on EM1, which is going to be which is going to be awesome. And especially for you because you said you're going to get some this is the last really uh, big, you know, piece of data that you need for this occupant protection thing before you get to that, you know, we're ready to fly thing, which I I believe is uh, EM exploration mission 2, if I'm not right. We are. Right. Yeah, yeah, we 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 do have a few more checkpoints. We got more sled tests we're going to run okay. with um, the we'll call it the final Orion spacesuit, the final Orion seats. We're going to go back to the same location. Now that we've completed these full-scale water drop tests and abort tests, now we've got that acceleration profile from those tests. And now when we run a sled test, we can come really close to reproducing what that environment looks like in the seat, but we can spend a lot of time and get high-speed video and a lot of measurements now on our crash test dummies now put inside what we'll call the, the final flight suit seat designs. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. still upcoming. A lot of great stuff coming up. Wow, Mark, this was uh, very fascinating to, to hear all the different elements that go into just really just a few key moments of human spaceflight, but extremely critical. Uh, and I think this was a fantastic overview. So, Mark, I really appreciate your time to, to bring us through this uh, biomechanics and this spaceship crash testing today. Sure. Thanks for having me.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Mark Baldwin about occupant protection and crash testing and biomechanics. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you are not done with everything we have to talk about about Orion, we have plenty of other episodes. You can check out episode 66 called 5,000 Degrees Fahrenheit. That one was on Orion's heat shields. You can go to episode 69, which was Navigating Deep Space on uh, Navigation and Communication. Episode 75, that uh, talked about radiation shielding. Episode 79 on, uh, it's called Livable Space. It was on life support and uh, life support systems and environmental control. Episode 84, we talked about propulsion, and uh, there's plenty more to come. Actually, if you go deeper back on episode 62, we dive into uh, AA2, the mission we talked about during today's uh, podcast, the uh, Ascent Abort mission. Uh, Episode 28, we talk about living in Orion for three weeks, and episode 17 is just general Orion. And again, there's more to come. If that doesn't satisfy your need, you can always go to nasa.gov slash Orion to see what they're doing right now. Uh, Otherwise, if you're looking for more audio content, nasa.gov slash podcasts has a lot of good stuff. For social media, stay up on the latest on the International Space Station, Orion, and Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention, Houston, we have a podcast. So this episode was recorded on April 24th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Norm Moran, Pat Ryan, Gary Napers, and Jessica Voss. Thanks again to Dr. Mark Baldwin for coming on the show and taking time out of his schedule uh, from all the way from Littleton, Colorado. So we'll be back next week.